0: when they should applaud, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> I see here a lack of participation <laughs> like Let's go. First, let me say, and I really mean really, it, these are not polite phrases. If anything, I'm not this superficially polite, but how glad I am to be here. First, generally, I love Portugal because of your literature, cinema, and so on. I cannot imagine my life being without Pessoa, without Saramago and so on. And I'm here anti-historicist. I don't believe that, you know, as vulgar Marxists, pseudo-Marxists say, in order to uh, understand a writer, you have to study the context, the country, maybe. But I think the much deeper truth is if you say the opposite. In order, if I come here and just look around real Portugal, nothing. But if I look at real Portugal after reading Saramago, Pessoa, then I will understand the country. And I think the, the same goes, for example, for England. This is my Hegelian part. Hegel says something wonderful in his lessons on, I think, uh, uh, philosophy of history. World History, he says that the spiritual result of of, uh, an opposition war was the book that was written about it by Eucydides. It's a terrible thought. So the real war was thought to enable the writer to do it. But I think in some way, without justifying the horrors, the death, this is spiritually true. Like, isn't the reason we remember today Elizabethan England, that it gave birth to Shakespeare, and so on. So in this sense, for me, and I'm ready to go to the end uh, here, when I was recently in San Francisco, I told them the reason your city deserves to exist is that to enable Hitchcock to shoot vertigo there, (laughs) In the same sense, yes, you have the right to exist, (laughs) after Saramago and so on. I especially like... This city, with its convoluted streets, streetcars, uh, this morning was, I stepped around and my God, you know, three small bookstores immediately around. And back uh, to, your, to uh, my translator, I think it's, I should be grateful and honored to be with you because it's for people like that, people who, are also attentive, beneath all my stupidities that I often said there is some kind of effort to think, and if I got it correctly from what you said, you are well aware of the tensions and so on I'm struggling with. It's all very open for me, the moment is very tense. So, so much for the introduction. Now, how do you say, let's do some work Karagu, or how? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. First, let me say that it's every history conspired with me because when I awakened this morning and looked at the news, I thought, where am I? In some ideal country like ancient Greece. You know, I opened the news, it says Socrates arrested, you know. <laughs> then I looked, then I thought that if I look deeper, I will find then some financial news like because of austerity measures, Plato's Academy will no longer get the state support or what. I knew I'm at home. But then the second news, the speech yesterday in Lisboa by Pablo Iglesias. And maybe in some sense you can take what I will say today here as my comment about that speech. I am fully, of course, supportive of Podemos. But I think it's the duty of us thinkers, philosophers, now to be attentive to show, to to hint at possible future problems, contradictions, and so on. Because this is my big obsession. What in English, or rather American, they call the morning after. After the night of drinking or this, whatever. It's relatively easy to have a big enthusiastic public event. Hundreds of thousands of people in Cairo, Tahrir Square, uh, what is the other one, in Gaza Square in Istanbul, and so on. That's relatively easy, but my fear is, and anxiety goes to what happens after when, as we say, things return to normal. I'm te- what my great fear is that, you know, the situation will get simply normalized and then those revolutionaries of today Five years ago, we'll meet in a cafeteria and talk, wasn't it nice when we were all on the street? And then they will talk until the phone of one will ring and, sorry, I have to go to my bank with my business or whatever. So for me, the measure of the revolution is, are not those enthusiastic moments, but what really changes when things return to normal? And here, I'm just warning all the people I know. For example, whenever I meet, we are kind of friends, Alexis Tsipras of uh, Syriza in Greece, I tell him, I wish you all the best, but are you aware how horrible the situation will be if you win? If you will be the first to win, you will have a state apparatus totally corrupted of two million people which will see you as a threat. You will have, a, you will have a police, which is 50% their members of Golden Dawn, of direct, almost, not even proto-fascist, fascist right-wing. They will have bankers, everyone against them, and so on and so on. And I told him, what will you do with secret police? But I didn't mean it in this Stalinist way, you know, like, to arrest. but. You will need it, so precisely how not to do it in in the Stalinist way. So while I am totally aware of tremendous things going on now with Syriza, Podemos, and so on, uh, and I also know that it's an illusion to to ask now for a precise plan, like these measures, those measures, and so on. No, we have to begin with taking risks. You do this, you do that. But you should be aware that by doing this or that, even if it's a small, very reasonable measure, then you will see that in order to really do that, you have to do something more, and so on, and so on. And here, the enemies are waiting for us. For example, my more obscure friends in Germany are telling me that there is a very strong conservative strand in European politics which wants nothing more than the Syriza to win. And they already have plans how to guarantee chaos, hunger. So as someone told me, it's good for so-called people's power to emerge there so that we, we will teach them a lesson. You know, so again, I just like to uh, like to complicate things. Uh, but again, we have to begin. For me, the true utopians today are not just this radical leftists. Like, let's wait for pure situation when we will have a true proletarian revolution. The problem is that also moderate pragmatists are leftists. Sorry, are utopians. For example. My god, a Freudian could analyze me now. (laughs) For example, uh, Piketty, I love his book, but I think that I haven't recently read a more utopian book than his. What's his idea? Openly, he admits it. Capitalism is the only thing that really functions. Very productive. So let's keep the system as it is, let's just change the taxation system, higher taxes, and so on. This, I think, is a utopia if there ever was one. Because he is well aware that for this measure to be effective, you would need some worldwide authority. Otherwise, the capital will simply move elsewhere, and so on. My problem is, but in order to be in a position to do this, we would already have to win. Like in present political situation, you cannot do it. Point two: even after you do it, you would immediately face further problems, which would, you know, which would demand further measures. Like the utopia is that we can have the system as it is, just three times higher taxes and so on. That's utopia. So, uh, uh, but so what's my solution? It's simply as Napoleon put it on attack, et puis on le vera, you know. We have to begin with something. And I support everything. I think the task of a true radical politician is not to begin with radical revolution. If you, as Rosa Luxemburg put it wonderfully, if you wait for the right moment, it will never <coughs> arrive. Through your action, you should create conditions for the right moment. How? Precisely with. And that's the great art of politics today, more than ever. That's political wisdom. To pick out, to focus on a measure, and it can be a different measure in different countries, which appears and is, in a way, moderate, fully fitting, what Pablo Iglesias calls dignity, common sense dignity, but a measure which will then trigger further measures. For example, this is why, and this may be a horrible idea for some of you. I still have a certain respect for President Obama. His attempt to enforce universal healthcare was an incredible ideological shock for the United States. He was even dragged to, I think, to constitutional supreme court or whatever. Why? Because. Although it was a modest measure and he was right to say, wait a minute, this is not any revolution. They have it up from us in Canada, they have it in Europe and so on. But it was something which fundamentally destabilized the very basis of American ideology, focused on this false ideological notion, more about this later, of freedom of choice and so on. And if some of my books It was meant as a joke, but I love this joke. I even claim that how uh, you can detect this limitation of United States in some very superficial features, like this uh, limitation in the sense of limitation imposed of them by commonly accepted ideology. If you visited United States, you must have noticed two things. In hotels, for example, big hotels. First, that They count floors in a different way. It's first floor for them is what we call ground floor. They begin with one. This, I claim, is their limitation. They don't know that in order to count, you have to have a zero, which is what in Europe we call a spiritual substance, historical weight. They think you just have choices in the air. Second, connected problem, that's why In an ironic terms, I put it at a conference to them, they are not religious enough. In what sense? You know when you, are you also doing it here? But I don't think we are doing this in Europe. That if you have a hotel with more than 15 floors, they skip over the 13th floor. It's 12 and 14. But I told them, but whom are you cheating? God knows that 14 is really 13, you know? And it points in the same direction. And again, this is a good beginning for the United States. So we have to begin with such a modest attempt, and also in a modest way. I'm not, uh, although people accuse me of being Stalinist, whatever you want, I am not this kind of a radical leftist who doesn't have a respect for ordinary people and their troubles. This is why, for example, openly I tell you I'm not in a great favor of Fidel Castro. Although many of my friends call me Fidel, but not because of politics, but because like Fidel I talk too much, you know, like (laughs) you can never stop me, no? But you know, like when people say, oh, those filthy ordinary Cubans, traitors who want to go to Miami and so on. Well, I respect ordinary people's desire for some happiness, good life and so on. I don't like leftists who due to some large historical mission are ready to sacrifice ordinary people. So this is clear. Now let me return to Pablo Iglesias who said, if I understood it correctly, you explained this to me and I looked on the internet this idea of no left, no right, especially no left with high churches, organized just people against elites with a new master signifier, dignity. Okay, I think dignity is not a bad word because uh, the term is appropriate insofar as it makes clear that protesters are not protesting just because of some particular material demands. Dignity has this universal dimension of freedom and emancipation. However, my problem is that then what dignity means, and I I totally support Podemos, but as I've written already two years ago when it all started with Indignados, how I read in detail their programs, and just to provoke them, I've written that If you take their program literally, even every honest fascist would have subscribed it. You know, everyone, dignity, just society, money should serve people, not people, money, and so on and so on. These are generalities. The problem is, what do you do with it? I'm not saying now in a stupid way that we should abandon dignity and sane, stupid, direct way, class struggle, or whatever. Dignity is a good motto to mobilize people. We should just fight for what dignity will mean. The point is, as my friend, although we were enemies personally for reasons unknown to me, who recently died and who was even a kind of official philosopher of Podemos, Ernesto Laclau, I still have great appreciation for him as a political thinker, what he called struggle for ideological hegemony, you know. We have big words, dignity, democracy, honesty, freedom. The problem is, what will they mean? And here, the struggle begins. Now, let me really begin. When President Obama was accused of irresponsibly introducing class warfare into American political life, the billionaire Warren Buffett snapped back in defense of Obama. There is class warfare all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making war and we are winning." End of quote. So, if class warfare is still anathema in the American public discourse, this Repressed topic is returning with a vengeance in Hollywood. This is why I trust up to a point Hollywood. You know when friends tell me, oh, you are still a stupid old Marxist class war, I tell them, but what are you talking about? Look at recent Hollywood blockbusters. (laughs) They are all about a post-apocalyptic extreme class society. Hunger Games, Elysium, and so on and so on. So even Hollywood senses that if we allow the present development where our society is, our societies, even worldwide, are spontaneously moving, if we allowed this development to just go on, I think we are approaching some kind of a new apartheid authoritarian Society. It will not be the old fascist authoritarian society, which is why whenever left-wingers, when confronted with something they hate, and maybe probably they are right to hate it, when they use verbs like neo-fascism and so on, I immediately become suspicious. Because you know, they use big old words, words as filling the gap of the lack of their analysis of what really goes on today. I don't think, for example, Putin, I oppose to him, Putin in Russia, that he is simply a neo-fascist and so on and so on. We are now approaching a new type of authoritarian state, which still allows you all your personal freedoms, abortion, sexuality, whatever you want. At the individual level, you are fully allowed to follow all your idiosyncrasies, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, but I think, so what's the problem? I hope you saw an old film which was the first to detect the trend where we are moving. John Borman's Zardos from back 1974 with, he was still young then, uh, 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 Sean Connery and so on. It depicts again a future society where the rich elite lives in so-called vortex, a secluded community of civilized beings protected all around by an invisible force shield. And is this not the result of the fall of communism? That there is a universal new world order, but, this, but the paradox of the fall of the Berlin Wall is that new walls are emerging all around. United States versus uh, Mexico, West Bank, even uh, Europe there in the south, Spain protecting it from Africa, whatever. And uh, I claim that this is the paradox of global capitalism. Yes, commodities circulate freely, but people circulate less free than ever. I'm even ready to go a step further and claim that it's clear that today the global, global capitalist order, can less and less afford even the good old, let's call it naively, bourgeois democracy. It cannot be for everyone. More and more we have the division of those who are in, those who are out. Here I rely on my right-wing friend, but he is not an idiot, you should nonetheless uh, read him, the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk who wrote an interesting short book, translated into English, I don't know if it's in Portuguese also, In the World Interior of Capital, where he just develops this metaphor of a globe, claiming that global capitalism doesn't mean only globally in the sense of all encompassing, but also global in the sense of a globe. We privileged are in, and being in means that you think you see everything, but you don't even perceive the globe, the limit which separates you from those outside. And it's not only the radical outside, like way back there in, I don't know, Chinese gulag or, 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 or in Indonesia, these uh, 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 cheap factories where ordinary workers are exploded, I remember I was in Italy in December 2013 when something, maybe you remember it strange, happened. At least seven people died when a Chinese-owned clothing factory in suburb of Firenze, a small town called Prato, burns down and then analyzing it, surprised Italians noticed that in the very suburb of Florence, Firenze, they had slavery. Thousands of people of illegally immigrated there. They immigrated there. Chinese were working in half-slave conditions and so on and so on. So, again, and if you go, for example, to Los Angeles, you have the same experience. Just remember when you land in Los Angeles. Uh, The airport, the international big one, Lux is the code, is above in the area called Inglewood. You know why? Because it's a slum area and who cares if the... (laughs) landing plane, makes sounds, and so on. But the point is that, you see, for you, Los Angeles, is, if you go as a tourist, you know, maybe Santa Monica, Venice, Hollywood, uh, down, you simply don't see, don't, you, don't, uh, you don't notice that. That's our problem today. Maybe it's no longer the classical class division, but it's, in a way, an even stronger division, which also thinkers like Agamben tried to conceptualize. A division between those who are in and those who are out, to put it very simply. Uh, And so how to be active in these conditions? What to do? Here, I agree with the term Podemos. Yes, we can. But we should be aware of how of all the ambiguity of how this slogan can function today. Because, and now I will repeat an analysis done by my Slovene-Lacanian colleague, you, may, colleague, you mentioned Ker Alenka Zupancic, who noticed how, you know, how what is possible and what is impossible is divided in a very strange way today. On the one hand, in the domains of technology, personal freedom, sexuality, Almost everything is possible, or so they tell us. You know, uh, through new inventions, biogenetic or others, we will be able to live almost eternally. We have this tech-gnostic dream that we will become a software program, just downloading oneself from from one to another, material embodiment. Sexually, you do whatever you want, and I know here some extreme cases to amuse you. shocked even me, an old pervert guy. When I was in New York, I couldn't believe it. I learned that there, in some radically experimental sexual circles, circles something became fashionable. And okay, it's not that every man is doing it, but it's a small fashion, many are doing it. A uh, Surgeon can cut your penis into two so that you have two penises and then there are techniques that you can penetrate two women at the same time or all that, so okay, you can do, there are some small problems with urination then, but that's another thing. But the point is that here the idea is you can do it, you know that uh, uh, the Charles, Bre- the, the virgin boss already tries to do, yeah, 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 uh, to uh, flights into space, okay, If you have money, of course, everything can be done at this radical level. But on the other hand, so everything becomes possible. But if you want to raise taxes 1%, they tell you, oh, sorry, that's not possible. (laughs) So it's a nice paradox. Uh, What is possible, what is not possible? And I think that this is how I see Podemos. It's not, no, we can do even more than ruling ideology is promising us. No, it's, we should do those much more modest, lesser things, which are effectively prohibited today, prohibited in the sense that uh, they are presented as impossible. And I'm not joking. Like, the point is not just to do them. If you do them, you are immediately punished by international capital. And another note. Uh, that a little bit, maybe I don't totally agree, disturbed me in the speech by Iglesias. You know this fashionable hatred of Germany. I'm always afraid when you, I'm not saying the Germans are good guys, but nonetheless, don't blame an external enemy. The problem is the global system, you know. Okay, but uh, what I want to say is that, uh, 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 so this is how I see this. in in a paradoxically much more modest sense and again, yes, that's what I wanted to say Uh, this is the truly difficult thing to do because okay, you raise taxes then you are isolated by international capital how do you do it and it's not that there are simply bad guys out there no, I mean the problem is in the system it's a big problem how to really break out Uh, at the same time The problem is how, although we live apparently in an era where we imagine unlimited things, how our political imagination has decayed. This makes me very sad. My friend, whom you mentioned, I think Fred Jameson, uh, uh, says this years ago and I always use it, how today it's easy to imagine the end of the life of Earth. asteroid hitting us, but it's almost impossible to imagine just a radical change in capitalism, you know, like, the world can disappear, but capitalism cannot disappear. And recently I got a a funny, disgusting, at the same time, example of this limitation. I found on the internet a report on how scientists are developing, it's still in the utopian stage, but nonetheless, special drugs which will distort your sense of time so that in reality only let's say 10 minutes will pass, but you will experience it as 100 or 50 years. Okay, I will not engage into is this really possible or not. I don't care, I don't know. But what really depressed me is that the researchers who did it What did they offer as an example of practical use of it? The immediate example was prison terms, like let's say I am young specialist in something and I do some nice killing and I get 50 years of prison. Wouldn't it be much more productive for society, you know, to give me those drugs so that subjectively I will experience it as if I am in prison for 50 years But in reality, it will be just 10 minutes so that I can be useful, then I don't get out all for society. And okay, again, maybe I'm an old pervert man, but my first association was, isn't this sad that this is where the imagination was directed? My immediate association was, why not think about it in the opposite sense? Like, you make love for five minutes, you experience it like 10 years, you know, why... Why automatically, the, the, uh, again, the imagination did go in this direction? The problem here is, again, it's not that there are no changes imaginable. No, the problem is that there are changes, but uncontrollable. I think the world is radically changing. The problem is in what direction? For example, as to positive potentials. Someone with whom I don't wholly agree politically, but he's sometimes interesting, the British social thinker, Jeremiah Rifkin. He, in a recent book called The Zero Marginal Cost Society, he developed in a quite convincing way how, due to recent progress of internet and so on, how a new sphere is emerging which simply no longer functions at the level of market, like free circulation of data, even of some commodities, and so on. And I really think that, no wonder that the so-called, the so-called problem of so-called intellectual property is such a problem today. Frankly, I don't think capitalist society will be able to resolve this problem, because to put it in I'm consciously here, provocatively very naive, that uh, intellectual property is something which cannot be inscribed into the, ultimately into the level of private property. Like, it's an explosive dimension. It is almost, I would say, in its nature, communist. It has to function normally, if I may use this term, it has to circulate freely. So, okay, we have all these potentials of internet, but at the same time, as we learn from what, from Snowden and uh, others, uh, of course, Wikileaks, at the same time, this same phenomenon, internet engenders new unthinkable forms of control, which are, I think, much more dangerous than old, types of controlling people, but you know why? Because uh, in these new forms of control, you still retain your sense of freedom. So when I read WikiLeaks uh, Wikileaks' revelations, I totally agree with those who claim, but why focus on the United States? Isn't China or Russia much worse? My answer is yes, but in China and Russia, especially in China, you at least know directly that you are controlled. No one has even the illusion of freedom. While the problem in the United States is that they are controlled, but while still retaining the self-experience that they are free. And a vulgar metaphor came to me, uh, vulgar, rough. You know, uh, uh, I read somewhere, uh, this always fascinates me, this new biogenetic or technological brain sciences inventions, that uh, uh, they already succeeded in connecting brains to computers in such a way that at least it works with rats. My friend, a neurobiologist, sent me videos which show this, it's pretty horrifying. Like, you have a rat freely jumping around. Then you click, connect it to a machine, and you can play with a living rat like with a, with a, like with a remote-controlled car. You that no? know? And of course, privately, they're afraid to come with this out into public. Privately, they told me, of course, the whole point is to apply this to humans and I immediately asked them the question which they admitted is the right question. The enigma is this one. Let's say, I do this to you, I would love to. You wander around, I control you. The problem is, how will you experience it? Will you experience it, oh my God, I'm no longer myself? Or will you simply think that you are still free? They told me, unfortunately, it's the second option. Isn't this horrible? Like, you know, you are controlled, you even don't know. Another dimension of this new means of controlling. Did you hear about uh, 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 so-called so-called high-frequency traders? There was uh, recently uh, 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 some uh, uh, Flash Boys, a best-selling book which elaborated it. It's so interesting. The idea is that you know how millions are billions are earned. They established an extremely fast optic cable connections between Chicago and New York stock markets. It's just a tiny like instead of 17 milliseconds it's 13 milliseconds. And what do they do? Let's say I'm a stockbroker. I'm in front of a screen, I see an offer I press the button, buy, and it appears to me that immediately it's realized. Ah, what happens in that four milliseconds is that the computer program of those bad guys, high frequency traders, registers my yes offer and itself, the computer with its program, buys that commodity and sells sales is back to me for a slightly higher price. And I don't even get it because, again, the difference is four milliseconds. I think that it's instant. I press the button, I have it. Why is this so interesting? Because uh, it literally, first it undermines the internet myth that it's an instant synchronous world community, as they like to say, it doesn't matter where you are. Where well, here it matters where you are. And uh, the interesting thing is, again, that you are cheated at a level which is simply beyond your powers of representation. It, happens in some reality which is simply irrepresentable for you. And yes, now they're already building an optic cable connecting London and Frankfurt stock market with New York. So it will even go on and so on. So what I'm saying is that things are happening today. New, new uh, methodologies of how to control us which are simply, literally, beyond our comprehension. They work at a level that we, cannot even, uh, that we cannot even imagine. This is why, I think, it is important today, whenever people talk about freedom, everyone is for freedom, of course, to specify what is freedom, what do we mean by freedom? You know, we should repeat the infamous Leninist question. Freedom, yes, but for whom? To do what? Uh, On the one hand, this is, I think, how ideology works. On the one hand, how do we experience our freedom at everyday, day level? It's usually the freedom of choice. You know, like, yes, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. I am gay, I am heterosexual, I do it with cats, dogs, I leave you, all that. Or, I go where I want, I choose my profession, blah, blah. Uh, uh, At the same time, more and more, large political, financial, economic decisions are made, not only without democratic, consultation, but even so that we even don't know secretly. For example, I hope you did hear about so-called TISA, T-I-S-A, TISA agreements, which, I mean, it's true and it's crazy. Agreements were prepared among the leading trade nations, which will regulate in detail the conditions of financial flow and information flow. some things are quite horrible there. For example, one of the provisions is that, let's say a foreign company invests into your country. Let's say that then your legislation, you get some left-wing government, taxes them much higher, and then because of this, they will lose some money. According to this agreement, they can prosecute your government for depriving them of legal profits and so on and so on. But okay, whatever, I'm not even necessarily against it, of course I am, but this is not the question. The question is that something so absolutely important is being debated and not only were the negotiations done in freedom, but it even says in the agreement that for five years after it will be accepted and enforced, for five years it should remain secret. So, all the big decisions, or how to fight a war, Iraq, whatever you are, all this is done in secret, and what does this mean? This means that, obviously, the notion of freedom, which is our spontaneous notion of freedom, freedom of free choice, is not enough. It's not enough to choose between options given to you. What's more, at least, I have nothing against this type of freedom. I'm not a Stalinist who thinks, you know, that we should move beyond and to some total regulation. No, what I'm saying that, but we should also include into the notion of freedom, the freedom to influence, choose the very framework of these choices. That's the important thing. Like, in what the very coordinates of our freedom of choice. Here, ideology works. As some Italian economists and leftist thinkers, I wonder if their work is translated here. I think they're very important. Like Maurizio Lazzarato, The Rise of the Indebted Man, or Franco Bifo Berardi uh, developed. Uh, Here, ideology works in a wonderful way. The latest trick is that we are all, treated as capitalists. The idea goes like this. Even if you are a moderate worker, and for example, you want your children to be educated, then you take a credit. The idea is that you have to be treated as a self-entrepreneur. You act as a small capitalist. I get a credit, and again, it's this stupid freedom. I'm free to decide. Will I spend it for my children's education, for a holiday? for, I don't know, better health insurance. So the idea is a wonderful one, that we are basically all capitalists, and it's just a matter of percentage, of commas, if, like you, I hope you do, then I can exploit you, that you invest 100 millions, I invest 10,000, or whatever, you know. So you see, this basic experience of freedom is, in this sense, uh, false and mystifying. Freedom is no longer associated with large collective decisions. And my crazy idea, I wonder if you would agree, is that this is why we were so fascinated by events in Ukraine. It wasn't just European racism, like, oh, finally, the primitive Ukrainians will drop Russia and become join the enlightened West. It was something deeply much more tragic. We saw there something that is unimaginable in our societies. People collectively acting and enforcing a decision. In our societies, this no longer works. So again, how to break out of this? Uh, Let me just uh, control myself a little bit. Yes, do you allow me a little bit? You know, usually I make this joke here that, yes, if you apply the normal metaphysical linear notion of time, I'm close to the end. But here we should fight this metaphysical notion of time, you know, and (laughs) apply a circular notion of time and so on. No, sorry. Uh, The temptation here is anti-Eurocentrism. And I wonder if you will accept this. I'm trying to provoke you. This is my constant motive. That, you know, all this fashion, even among some so-called post-colonial thinkers of, you know, ah, Europe is over. Resistance from local cultures to global Western civilization and so on and so on. I think I'm absolutely opposed to it for a whole series of reasons. First, I think it's very significant, symptomatic that the European legacy is devalued at the very point when capitalism got global and no longer, let's put it like this, needs European values. The first thing that I always emphasize, the big historical thing, is that today, okay, Europe lost, is losing ideologically, but I don't like how it is losing, because it is simply that Europe has triumphed in the sense of global capitalism, but the problem is that this global capitalism no longer needs to function smoothly, the European notion of equality, democracy, and so on, it functions much better with so-called Asian values, which, I'm not a racist here, they have nothing necessarily to do with Asia. It simply means authoritarian capitalism. And that's the sad experience. Those countries which are the most innovative dynamic from a capitalist standpoint, like, like, I don't know, China, Singapore, South Korea, Here you have a new capitalism which fits perfectly more, even demands to function smoothly, uh, a more authoritarian political order. And exactly at this point, that's why I think we should resist this temptation of easy anti-Eurocentrism. No, at this point we can precisely use the authentic European legacy of Uh, equality, personal freedoms, uh, 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 welfare state, and so on and so on, as a weapon against capitalist globalization. What do I mean is the following. It's wrong to think that global capitalism promotes also American or European culture. No, I always repeat this. Global capitalism is immanently multicultural. Of course, not in the authentic emancipatory sense, but in the sense that it works quite well with even potentially racist, authoritarian, nationalistic regimes. That's why I think that what happened recently in India, you must know that this Modi, the new uh, prime minister who won the elections, is at the same time radical neoliberal. He openly told that he wants to make India into next China in the sense of opening... India to foreign capital for a cheap working force, and a radical Hindu nationalist. It's not, it's, there is no tension here. This is why, and here we should really be anti Eurocentric. We should drop this liberal illusion that, okay, maybe some countries need authoritarian order because they are too backwards for our freedoms. No, the uh, authoritarian countries are not thriving in spite of their authoritarianism, but precisely on behalf of it. For example, my leftist friends, and I have many in India, told me that they were shocked to discover that the most efficient, even new digital capitalists, in their private lives, they are usually very conservative, like family values and so on. It is in this way that they are motivated for their harsh work, like I'm really doing it to honor my gods, to take care of my family, and so on and so on. So again, and it's the same in China. I totally oppose the stupid idea that, uh, that Chinese capitalism will enter into contradiction with Communist Party rule. No, I, this is a very sad thing to say, but I think that it was precisely the, continuing communist rule which enabled in China such an explosive development. And they know it, in a way. Isn't this a wonderful paradox, that the Chinese Communist Party is the ideal political power to guarantee conditions for unbridled capitalism? That's our reality today. Uh, So, oh my God, now, come really interesting things. (laughs) Uh, I want to focus, before I return to the first choice and so on, and the first choice is basically your first choice, like you are forced to freely choose to listen to me, you know, okay, but that's another Uh, What type of subjectivity fits this global capitalism? I think a perverse type. Perversion, whereby perversion, I don't mean perversion in the sense of doing horrible things, but something else. What? I remember when I was young, 68 and so on, revolution, it was fashionable to celebrate in this pseudo-Deleuzean, Gilles Deleuze mood, it was fashionable to celebrate perversion against hysteria. You know, like hysterics are, and it was even a clear anti-feminist message here. Women are hysterics, they provoke the master but at the same time demand a new master and so on, while perverse males, they go to the end. They don't just dream about it, provoking the master. They do. I think this entire view is totally to be rejected. If there is a lesson to be learned from after 68 election, uh, 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 social development, but also from psychoanalysis is that a pervert is not truly subversive. A pervert is always just the, what I call, inherent transgression, the obscene other side of the ruling ideology. Why? Let me apply this here, this, maybe, probably you know it, this term by Louis Althusser, ideological interpolation. It means ideology interpolates you in the sense of it it provides an ideological public identity for you. You are a free consumerist, a fascist, whatever. Mother, teacher, revolutionary, you have a certain identity. And now I'm referring to the other of my Slovene colleagues, Mladen Dolar, who did a wonderful text already 25 years ago, Beyond interpolation. It was really an ingenious move, where he claimed that hysteria is precisely A gesture of problematizing interpolation. As Lacan pointed out, the fundamental hysterical question is who am I in the sense of why am I what you, the big other society, why am I what you are telling me that I am? I mean, you have even ridiculed by men, but not in the right way. You know, that's the That's beneath this eternal feminine question. If you tell a woman you love me, tell me why do you love me? And the instinct is right, I think, here. That's the enigma. I mean, this is why for Lacan, hysteria is the basic subversive attitude. And what the hysteric knows perfectly is that perversion is not truly subversive. It closes the gap, it just provides the, let's call it, the obscene supplement. Like you have the public regime of dignity, Christianity, and then you have the perverse other side, tortures, police, or in the United States in the 20s, Ku Klux Klan and so on. This is what always fascinated me. And I'm sorry we don't have time to develop it more. This notion how every social order is not just what it is. But you have a whole series of what I called implicit transgressions. Let me take, with all the respect for Christianity, I'm clear here, my God, I, as an atheist, I wrote five, four or five books celebrating the um, emancipatory potential of Christianity. But nonetheless, I must say, isn't clear case of Catholic Church pedophilia? This is their own (coughs) immanent transgression. Because it's absolutely clear if you analyze and I did it, I have friends who investigate. The, the enigma is that this is not just like, okay, there are pedophilia everywhere, no wonder that they are there. No, the very reaction of the church to it, this absolutely protective attitude and so on, shows that pedophilia is like an inherent transgression, something in a perverse way generated by it. And uh, so this is what, again, the hysterical subject knows that, that, that the official order and its obscene other form a totality. That a- every order has its dark side, if you want it, like this, the perverse, there is no master without a pervert doing the dirty work for him, supporting it, that's what the hysterical subject, again, again perfectly knows. And again, I will try to squeeze. Sorry? You have time, you have more 10 minutes. 10 minutes in a linear metaphysical sense <laughs> to be deconstructed. OK. No, no. Uh, because uh, you know how this works. Uh, for example, it, I will tell you some first funny things, then, unfortunately, some uh, horrible things. Uh, Imagine how was it when you were introduced into these pleasures of the adults, smoking heavy drinks. Isn't it always like this? Some older friend tells you, do you know what adults are doing? He or she gave you a cigarette, a strong whiskey, whatever, drink, and admit it, your first reaction was disgust. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, now it becomes real. How can they enjoy it? It's a learned pleasure. It's not, if you were to stick to your spontaneous pleasures, well, you would have been probably, I don't know, drinking fruit juices or milk or whatever, you know. And uh, the same goes even, now let's make a step further, for talking dirty swearing. My experience is that it's not that I talk in a polite way with you and then you say something stupid or something that, annoys me and then I exploit, uh, sorry, I explode. No, my, I, I have with my friends a weird ritual which I think proves the opposite. When I meet with my friends, we first for 10 minutes talk dirty and exchange insults, like you know, and I'm from Balkan, we really know how to do it, like <laughs> I will dig your dead mother out of her grave and screwed up whatever, better. But, Then comes a magic moment after 10 minutes, when we say, okay, now we did our duty to be ugly, now we can kindly talk to each other, and it works in a perfect way. Now, let me get more serious. Two phenomena, one north, the other south of the United States. You know what is uh, happening in Ciudad Juarez? There is a good Deleuzean analysis, so-called femicide. Gangs of white men are systematically kidnapping white women and torturing uh, uh, collective rape, murder in a terrifying way. They usually first gang rape them, then slowly slice them, first they cut off their breasts with uh, brutal, with scissors, it's unimaginable. But what's so interesting is that this is not a spontaneous outburst, it's clear what is happening. You have there in Ciudad Juarez, which is the capital of this fast, just, you know, putting together parts assembled from elsewhere, where they need many young cheap labor force. Thousands of women are there, and they're nonetheless free, living alone single, this is a provocation to male power. So. But the interesting thing is how, how ritualized these horrible acts are. So you can see they are not individual outbursts. They are the dark underside of the ruling ideology in the sense of they are obscene rituals. And this is what the official reaction to them tries to obliterate. They are treated as always as individual pathological cases, which is why it's a horrible thing. Not one perpetrator was arrested. The only one who was punished was a mother of one of these girls who protested too much. Uh, Now let's move to the north of American, Vancouver Indian reservations there. It's a similar thing. There is a male ritual to kill the girls there, uh, to kill Native American Indian girls, and it's the same. Uh, It's clearly a male ritual some kind of a, a ritual of maturation. But police strictly treats it as isolated family matters. They try to attribute it to the, fa- to, the, uh, to the family of the girl, oh, it must be again a drunken mother or whatever. So again, what is oppressed, it's not the horror of the crime. But again, it's, uh, it's systematic, ritualized, symbolic, uh, it's uh, a systematic, ritualized, uh, symbolic uh, nature. This, and uh, I claim that this is one part of our ideological, ideologically, ideological situation. Look always for the imminent, dirty secret, for that something which may appear even something subversive, but it's really part of the of how ruling ideology reproduces itself. The obverse of this is another strange phenomenon, which is, I think, strictly part of the ruling ideology, the super-ego oppressive culpabilization of us as individuals. You know, we are all time bombarded by, for example, ecology. It's a big field of ideology. Why? The way it is done, if you ask general questions. Okay, what are big companies doing and so on and so on. The answer is usually wait a minute, who are you? Are you innocent? And then it begins, you know, like, did you put aside all Coca-Cola cans? Did you put, like, to make you guilty and forever guilty in the sense of did you do enough and so on. It's the same with politically correct fighting of sexual harassment. I'm totally against sexual harassment. But on that, like, I don't like this, especially in the United States, this endless self-imagination. How did you look at that woman? Are you sure there wasn't already an element of, they call it visual rape, you know, like, how you, and so on and so on. I, I, I think that there is something absolutely false in this radical self culpabilization like you know you are because you know the ruling ideology at the same time then offers you an easy way out like I'm sorry if I repeat this case forever uh, uh, Starbucks it's the biggest maybe one of the biggest ideological machineries today why they did something ingenious They, uh, they Counted, count on this guilt feeling, my God, while while children are starving in Africa, I'm here enjoying my cappuccino. And they make you pay for it to, make, to offer you an easy way out. Like the message of Starbucks, even literally, yes, our cappuccino is more expensive, but 1% goes to Guatemala children, another goes to fighting, uh, 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 to give water to Sahara, whatever. And it's a wonderful operation when you can fully enjoy to be a consumerist because your ethical duty to provide is already included into the price, you know, it's pay a little bit more and you are clean. So, and of course, this type of superego, individual culpabilization uh, also prevents you from asking radical uh, social questions. Then another strategy that I admire today is this? It's strictly part of all this constellation that I'm trying to describe. It's my favorite one. Is how uh, uh, sexuality itself gets desexualized. Did you notice a strange thing in last, uh, in the latest uh, James Bond movies? It's a politically a very good one, Quantum of Solace. Politically, there James Bond my go. He saves Morales' regime in Bolivia against a bet. Uh, international corporation. But something very strange happens there. There is no sex at the end. Did you notice this? It's the first James Bond film. Now we will say, fine, less male chauvinism. It's much more ambiguous. Let's now move from James Bond really low to books which I I become uh, Goebbels there. I would have burned them in public like the Nazis did. Dan Brown. Did you notice how in his last novels, sex is disappearing? There is no sex in Da Vinci Code and in his later novels. In the previous one, it's even more interesting, Angels and Demons. There is sex in the novel, but not in the film. Isn't this strange? Usually we thought Hollywood adds sex to make it more commercial. No, Hollywood, and you know what happens here? My friend Alain Badiou wrote a lot about it. Uh, We are allowed sex today. But it has to be healthy sex, sex reduced of its dangerous substance. This is why you uh, made this wonderful observation. I don't know how it is in your language, but in uh, English and French, the verb we use for falling in love is precisely fall. <laughs> you fall into it. And this is wonderful. This is what in Badiou's terms makes sex an event. This moment of openness, you know, unexplicably something hits you, you are in it. But the whole ideology today is directed against it. Even, but you found some ads, and found them in English, of these marrying or dating agencies where even literally alluding to this formula, they said, we will enable you to be in love without the fall. Like, you know, we will, you will not have to look around what will hit me, they organize the ideal partner for you, and so on and so on. And what is at the end of this road is something really sad. If you talk about uh, politically correct sex, it's something very sad, even some feminists got this. Namely, you know, as everybody knows, in a process of seduction, someone at a certain point had to make a move. You know, okay, you may be flirting gently, but then somebody had to come open. And this is always a risky move. Like, following strict politically correct rules, if the woman or the man says no, you can be accused of sexual harassment, minimally. Is there a way not to do it? Yes. And it's very tragic, it's pure contractualization of sex. And again, some intelligent feminists claim that the only sex flirting without harassment is to make a kind of explicit deal. And uh, Julian Assange told me that in Sweden they are already considering it. It's not yet accepted by the law, but they debate in public the following proposition, which for me is a horrible one. Let's say I'm flirting with a woman, man, whatever, and we both want to do it. But we want to be sure that it will be politically correct. So they are debating a forum where we fill it in, your name, my name, date of birth, religion, do I have any illnesses, and so on. And then we both sign it and up, we are free to do it. I find, I find this uh, pretty terrifying, this obsession, and even as I, I've written a lot about it, even uh, even uh, our, our obsession with the danger of smoking is for me suspicious. No, I'm totally against smoking, I don't smoke. But I don't think our obsession with prohibiting smoking can be explained really in the terms of just medical care and so on. Did you notice how at least in... United States and and, uh, some other parts of Northern Europe. The same people who are obsessively against smoking are usually for uh, free drugs that you know. So it's clearly something else. And I think what annoys people, the hint was given to me by recent decision of American big companies to prohibit on their flights even electronic cigarettes. And they made it explicit that It's not because we don't know they also can be dangerous. No, they accept that uh, smoking is not dangerous. Their justification is something terrifying for me. They say, by sucking electronic cigarette, you give a dangerous example to others of how you're not able to control yourself. (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, and again... At the end, it's what type of sex? Maybe you know the joke, I'm sorry if I repeat it, but I love it. Uh, uh, a year ago, along, Guardian magazine asked me to imagine how romance, romance is still imaginable today. And I, my answer was an instant one. You know that you have for women these plastic penises, dildos, properly accompanied with a battery where you can regulate how, okay. But you know that you have now the same for men. Plastic vaginas, they are called, I love the term, it's so technical, stamina training unit. (laughs) It's like a big battery, you can carry it around so that it doesn't embarrass you, and then you take off the top, and you put on whatever plastic opening you want, vaginal, mouth, anal, and then you regulate it, you know, how, uh, how, how strong it should vibrate, how tense it should be. And then what would be for me the ideal politically correct date, if you ask me. Okay, I have a woman, let's take it from my uh, 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 male Chauvinist perspective, we want to do it. Okay, we make a date at her or my place, and each comes with his or her Plastic, we connect both of them to electricity, I push my penis into her plastic vagina, my plastic, oh no, the opposite, she pushed her, she has it, into my, and we turn off the machines, and we, ah, the machines are buzzing, okay, they're enjoying for us, and I can then sit with her and have a nice cup of tea and so on. That's where, believe me, that's where we are aiming. So nonetheless, if you give me now just three, four minutes to make the te- theoretical final point, to save my honor, I have to do some theories. <laughs> my good friend, the French uh, thinker of catastrophes, philosopher, uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, they sh- you should translate it. He recently published a book which is kind of a... a a synthesis of his work. Recently it was published by Michigan State University Press now a couple now a month ago. It's simply called Economy and the Future. And what he does in this work, he develops in a wonderful way the notion of counterfactuals. You know, it's now let's make it to conclude a little bit more difficult. Uh, for example, take these two types of a conditional statement. If Shakespeare did not write Hamlet, someone else did it. This is true, it's a factual statement. Why, because Hamlet exists, so it's clear that if Shakespeare did not write it, someone else had to. But change this subtly into a statement. If Shakespeare had not written Hamlet, someone else would have done it. Uh, This is a much more risky thesis. This is a determinist thesis that there was, in the spirit of time, some deeper necessity, pressure to do it. So, if not Shakespeare, someone else would have done it. You know that this is something like uh, very similar to this vulgar Marxist notion of the role of big uh, historical persons, like Georgi Plekhanov the Russian Marxist from late 18th beginning of, sorry, late 19th beginning of 20th century, he developed this idea. It was, there was a general tendency at the end of the French Revolution towards the passage from republic towards empire. And if not Napoleon, simply someone else would have taken this over. Now, my idea following and following and you know the same debate you have about Stalinism. There are hardline determinists who claim there was a necessarily tendency for the Russian Revolution, October Revolution, to turn into a Stalinist kind of regime. So if not, Stalin, someone else, let's imagine Stalin having an accident killed in the early twenties. Well, someone else would have to do it. Maybe in a little bit different way, but basically in the same way. I claim, and here I follow uh, Dupuy, that uh, the solution to this is a much more simple, but at the same time radical. That the unity of necessity and contingency is not of this type. There is a deeper necessity, and it's contingent how it will be realized, there is a genuine contingency but what it is, what happens, you do have, a. now I come to my title, you do have a free choice but once you make the choice, your choice becomes retroactively your destiny. Uh, what do I mean by this? So that at this counterfactual level, we are not talking about magic, you can change the past. Let me give you a simple If you love movies, example from Hitchcock's Vertigo. Scotty, the hero, you know the story, I hope, first loses Madeleine. Okay, it's a tragic loss, and so on. But something even more tragic happens at the end when he learns that there was no Madeleine. The woman whom he encountered as Madeleine was the same as the vulgar Judy. So, Madeleine, so in a way, what he discovers at the end is not only that there was no Madeleine, but that retro, sorry, that he lost Madeleine, but that retroactively Madeleine never existed. You know, in this counterfactual sense, the the past has changed. Now, let me give you another example and go back uh, to what I mentioned uh, 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 that uh, process of seduction. Let's say, okay. I have a difficult, I'm in a difficult spot. Should I, as they call it, make a pass, the ecstasy gesture of or not? If I do, if I am rejected, then I can be accused of harassment, political, but, but if my partner, the one whom I want to seduce, says yes, then it's not that I overcome successfully the obstacle, is that I retroactively discovered that there never was an obstacle. And there are wonderful uh, 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 cases of this, of this contingency, retroactively turning into f- faith. For example, in authentic falling in love, isn't it that you encounter someone contingently, but once you fall in love, you automatically perceive all your past that, my God, it was all pointing towards this moment, and so on and so on. Like, and even, we can take here the best known example, Caesar crossing Rubicon. No, one can well imagine him not crossing Rubicon. But once he did it, it was his fate to do it. You see what I'm saying? I'm not only saying that uh, once he did it, the future was different. What I'm claiming is that, once he did it, even the past appeared different. And uh, I think that this is why we are confronting a crisis. Now, back to global capitalism. We are confronting a crisis uh, in the sense of, it's clear that at the level of, uh, at the level of uh, ecology, it can't go on indefinitely the way it does. In the best case, we will end up in this type of uh, referring to the movie Zardoz society where the elite will live in protected areas, uh, intellectual property, banking, um, new forms of apartheid, biogenetics, who knows, who will control it, and so on. So I don't think we should put our situation in this simple terms of this or that. No. We have a choice, but not simply a choice between possibilities. We literally have to choose our fate. That's what I'm saying, you know. We should accept that catastrophe is our fate. But accepting this doesn't mean simply, yes, it will happen. We should accept it as a fate, but doing everything that this fate will not be realized, you know what I mean, the situation in which we are is such that, again, in the existing world it's our fate that we are approaching a catastrophe. And then we should do things to, in a way, change our fate retroactively. I don't have time to go into it now when things are getting, for philosophers, interesting, but. Uh, this would also be connected, just to give you a hint to what my friend Fred Jensen, to a surprising statement he made. He said that if there is a notion in theology which should be of interest to Marxist revolutionary, it's the notion of predestination. He claimed this is the most dialectical notion. Why? Because, as every good Protestant knows, predestination does not mean, oh, everything is predetermined, so I can do whatever I do. Predestination means precisely an instigation to constant activity. That's why predestination theology was precisely the ultimate capitalist theology. You see, the paradox is my faith is predetermined. That's why I have to be active all the time. This is, I think, the only authentic radical notion of Freedom. Why? Because, as every good Protestant theologist knows, yes, your faith is predetermined, but you don't know how. You don't know where you are. And I think that when you are in a position of everything is predetermined, but I don't know how, the choice you make is a radically free choice. It's a much more free choice than this simple freedom of choice, choice where, you know, where you enter into a patisserie and you choose strawberry cake or chocolate cake or whatever. No, things are predetermined, but how? Which means your freedom is much higher than simple freedom of choice. Your freedom is the freedom to choose your fate because once you will make this choice, yeah, retroactively you will create your own fate. And I think only in this radical way we can fight our fights today. If we limit ourselves to the first vulgar choice, freedom of choice, this or that, we are already within the existing capitalist coordinates. The choice, again, is a much more radical, and this would be my reading of Podemos, no? It's not just we can have a chocolate cake instead of strawberry cake, no? But we can choose our fate. Thank very much. If I was too long, well, but it's in my nature. Thank you. Sorry. Now I will, to answer your applause, I will use another of my old standard jokes, which is like, you know, don't applaud too much Spare your energy. When we communists will take power, you will have to applaud in those (laughs) obligatory rituals, you know, so spare your energy for when we... And there is a wonderful anecdote about Stalin along these lines. Once Stalin was old, I read somewhere, in a biography of Stalin, like 1950, he received a small group of generals for some order and at the end they applauded him. The problem was it was a small room, only 50 of them, so no one dared to stop applauding, you know, to be the first. And it was so tragic, like two or three of them, they were all generals, collapsed and so on, but still no one dared, so at the end Stalin had to say, comrades, enough, No, like he had to do it, like, I would die to be in that situation. Thank you very much, thank you. Great. Thank you. And I promise you, I don't associate it with that plastic penis I talked about. I promise you, it's not that. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. And listen, I would really like, if there is genuine interest in you, to come here back again. I don't demand any money and so on, just to do some, maybe a little bit more narrow, real. Seminar, because what I'm doing now is, as you gently indicated, all my group, you know, are in what situation? Do you know that there is a mystery about Pythagorean school that someone make, made a mathematical discovery about how some numbers cannot be divided or whatever, which would have ruined their thought? So they tried to keep that secret, no? And we, Slovene, my Slovene school name, dolar Lenka Zupancic, have similar problems with Hegel and Lacan. We are no longer just playing this game, Hegel and Lacan together can save us. We are trying to make a move beyond. And it's, the situation is very open. We don't know where it will go and so on. And this is what we are all fighting about. Alenka Zupancic is now doing a new book about uh, ontology and sexual difference approaching this problem. Mladen Dolar is doing some stuff. I am now doing a new book, Figurous Negativity, where I try to, and I have many new lines of thought. You know, this is madness. People thought after the mega book, mega quantitatively, less than nothing, no? And it's a nice joke. Less than nothing, well, it's over 1,000 pages, it certainly doesn't wait, (laughs) less than nothing, no? I did another one, absolute recoil, where I fight with the same problem, and now I'm writing figures of negativity, the third philosophical one, like, things are really happening, it's horrible, we don't have a position, we are open, and I would love to come here and to do it, maybe since you are the British city here, I was told you don't have problems with English, to do this in a more serious way, like that I send some chapters to you in advance. Yeah, yeah in this sense that you have the text before and then you can debate it. I would love to come again here. Thank you. Thank you.